Dementia is a difficult obstacle for many families to overcome all over the world. So what are the effective methods to deal with dementia and other cognitive disorders? Okay, George, what's today's date? Look at the calendar and tell me the date. And he looks at the calendar and he tells you the date. And then you literally wait 20 seconds. And you say, okay, George, what's today's date? And you don't really care if they remember the date. What you want them to remember is that they should look at the calendar. And you can use that for a variety of tasks. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. In this episode, we'll talk with speech-language pathologist Laura Glufflin-Tam about dementia, available resources for those with dementia, and the best ways to help patients with the disease. As a speech-language pathologist, prior to me coming here to work at Emerson, I worked in a variety of medical settings, acute rehabilitation hospital and a skilled nursing facility, and I worked with individuals who presented with various types of dementia. One person in particular was diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia, which is one of many different types of dementia, and she had the decline over time where she had trouble with her thinking skills and her memory and her communication skills. She had a hard time communicating her thoughts and ideas. And we worked with her to try to set up systems and strategies to make her remember information a little bit better. So we used a calendar system and we kept referring to that and taught her to refer to that. So our focus was not really to make her remember the date and the year and the month, but to use the calendar as a strategy and a resource for her so that she could reference the calendar and use that effectively. Same thing with a clock. So instead of having to remember, oh, what time is it right now? Remembering the idea of using some sort of strategy. And that proved to be very successful for her. That's fascinating. Are there other types of strategies one might use with Alzheimer's? To help someone's communication and sort of memory about their lives and different people in their lives and different memories, uh, we've put together different memory books or communication books where you can use it as a resource to help somebody flip through almost like a photo album where you have of major facts and life stories. So birth of your grandchildren, a favorite vacation you went on, and you'd be able to flip through the book with your loved one and sort of help them remember and refresh those old memories so they have some positive feelings about their lives. Now, are there any recommendations of what the caregiver should do when their loved one who has Alzheimer's isn't remembering? That's a really good point. I think that there are some strategies for individuals that are caregivers that are caring for their loved ones with Alzheimer's. I think one thing is to not be confrontational or try to correct the person with Alzheimer's. I think it's better to be reassuring and to try to offer comfort. And maybe if they're starting to get upset that they can't remember something, to sort of redirect them and help them work around the problem. So for example, a person close to my family is really struggling with remembering how to shower. So instead of confronting her and saying, you haven't showered today, why don't you remember to shower? It's really important to shower. We've set up some other strategies. So we just put the tub seat in the bathtub and now she just remembers when she gets up. We've put some signage in her room to remind her with pictures saying, you know, remember to shower. So we've marked it on the calendar, the days with which she would shower. So instead of it being an argument that often is not successful, we tried to circumvent that and put in some strategies 
to afford this person the opportunity to be as successful as possible and to follow through on some of these tasks that she used to be able to do independently before but now needs some support in doing. Is your work directly with the patient or is it with the family? How Could you explain the whole dynamic in which you apply your services? Sure. We would work with both um, a patient directly to educate them about dementia, to, again, to teach them different strategies. As much as they can learn, unfortunately, because of dementia and the problems with thinking and memory, sometimes it's hard for them to really learn and, and take on and use these strategies effectively. So we often teach the caregiver. And really the caregiver becomes part of the therapy process. We would meet with them, teach them the different strategies, and provide support to them. The other thing we could recommend are things such as support groups or other resources. One that I frequently go to is the Alzheimer's Association website. They offer a lot of nice resources about how to make your home safe, how to gain support for yourself, meet other caregivers. It's a very emotional process to see your loved one unfortunately decline over time and sort of sometimes it's a very stepwise process pretty predictable course and then sometimes it's not it's really protracted over a long period of time and it's can be very painful to watch so it's important to have resources now the therapies that you offer is it strictly just for alzheimer's no actually it's for other types of dementia as well so Um, We have worked with individuals who have something called vascular dementia or a dementia that's a result of a series of small strokes. And that presents a little bit differently where you're fine and then you sustain a stroke and you have a decline and then you kind of plateau and then you have another series of strokes and then you decline again. So it almost looks like a set of stairs. And so we would work with people after each of those declines. Sometimes we also work with individuals who have something called primary progressive aphasia. Uh, which is not per se dementia, but it, it, it is a deteriorating process similar to that, but it's in the language areas of the brain. So the person starts to lose their ability to communicate. They don't really have any problems with memory, but they have difficulty remembering names of people or names of places, clearly conveying their thoughts. Um, and they also decline, and we would provide therapy services for them as well. Are there any other forms of dementia that you address? Yes, I also have worked with individuals with uh, Parkinson's disease. There's a subset of individuals with that diagnosis who also present with dementia, and we work to support them and working on their memory and being successful again at home. I've worked with individuals with something called Lewy body dementia. And so, again, there's a variety of forms of dementia. I think a lot of people lump dementia into one category, and often most think of Alzheimer's as the most common category, but there are other types of dementia as well. You'd mentioned cardiovascular and how there's certain decline stages. So that would seem to indicate that that particular dementia has a unique characteristic. Are there unique characteristics of other forms of dementia? Yes, there are. So in Alzheimer's dementia, for example, there's a staging process by which, depending on the behavioral sort of characteristics, how the person is presenting, you can do staging from a zero, which means the person is fine, there's really no evidence of impairment, down to from a one to down to a seven. It is pretty predictable course in Alzheimer's how one moves from one stage to the next. It can take years for someone to go through all of the stages. Unfortunately, stage seven is when the person is in very advanced stages of Alzheimer's and often passes away. Maybe not from dementia, but potentially from associated illness, 
or disorder related to that as a consequence. So whether it be due to pneumonia, for example, or something of that nature, unfortunately, uh, Alzheimer's typically ends in someone passing away. Now, I think you also mentioned Lewy body. Mm-hmm. Could you give us some characteristics of that particular form of dementia? So Lewy body has an interesting set of characteristics. Often similar to Alzheimer's, people would have difficulty with memory and sort of thinking skills. But there are some individuals with Lewy body who have hallucinations and actually have visual hallucinations and sort of misperceive things that they're seeing. They actually thought that Robin Williams might have had some evidence of Lewy body dementia and that he actually might have been informed of that and that's why he took his life, not necessarily because of depression, because he was exhibiting some signs of Lewy body, he was having some difficulty with memory, sometimes you have this effectual change in terms of depression, and that, um, again, you'd have these visual hallucinations. Again, it's a progression, but it presents a little bit differently than Alzheimer's or even the cardiovascular form of dementia. So we went through a variety of different types of dementia. In terms of therapies, do you have to tailor your particular therapy to the dementia, or is it a standard therapy that's applied to all dementias equally? I think it's important that all therapy should be individualized. While there are broad themes, we would work on someone's thinking skills. We would work on someone's ability to recall information or use some compensatory strategy to help them remember. We would work on their communication skills. As speech-language pathologists, we always want to individualize our treatment. Everybody's different. Everybody has a different path. Um, and decline pattern. So we would want to meet with them, meet with the caregiver, and decide what's most important to them and what supports and sort of therapy could we put in place to make it most effective as possible. I will also add that in dementia, unfortunately, because of the nature of the disease process, therapy tends to sort of come in and out of a person's life. So we might go in for a period of time, maybe several weeks or a month or so, provide some services, put things in place, and then step out. And then once the person declines, we might get a re-referral and pick them up again and provide some more service. So a speech-language pathologist might go in and out. Is there a particular process involved to determine which therapy to apply? We would always do really good intake interview. So we would gather information from the medical record. We would do a very good thorough interview. We also are obligated to do a full assessment. We have some diagnostic tools that we use to administer and determine areas of strength and then areas of impairment. And we focus our treatment on those areas of impairment to try to make the therapy as effective as possible. So again, the therapy tends to be fairly tailored and individualized to the person, Uh, but again, generally in the areas of thinking, memory, safety, problem solving, uh, and communication. When you look at the diagnosis with dementia, there's so many factors that can go into it, and determining which form of dementia is really difficult. So with that, when you do that intake, when you do those assessments, where do those assessments come from? What's their origin? Is it AMA? Is it created at Emerson? Is it a industry standard? Could you give us a little more context into that whole process and How does it work? Where do these things come from? And Mm -hmm. what are some of the things people need to know if they suspect their loved one actually might have dementia? That's a great question. 
you really have to go see your medical physician first, really your primary care physician first. If you suspect you have any difficulties, again, with your thinking, your memory, you go to the mall and you forget where you parked your car. You These are, again, common things, sometimes everyday things that people have trouble with. But when it becomes persistent and problematic over and over and over again, and it puts you at risk, you really should see your doctor. A doctor will run a series of tests that are pretty standardized. They will do, again, a good intake. They will do a series of blood work to to try to rule in or out any signs of dementia. So they might check things such as B12. There's a B12 deficiency that mimics dementia. So if that's what the cause is, they can give you medication for that. If you have diabetes, if you have hypothyroid, if you have any sort of medical condition, they want to make sure that's taken care of appropriately with treatment to rule out, again, is that the cause or the suspected cause? Often a person is has a brain scan, either a CAT scan or an MRI, to rule out that there's not underlying cardiovascular disease, maybe it's strokes causing this. Is it a brain tumor or some sort of infection? So the doctor would want to get some sort of information about the neurology of the patient. And then usually a physician does something called a screening. One of them is called the mini mental. And so it's just a mental status check. It's a series of few questions that checks is the person oriented to time, place, date, season. There's a mental, uh, cognitively slightly challenging task where you're given tasks that you have to do some mental manipulation with. And if you're having trouble with that, that might be an indication that you you might have dementia. And they have you go through this series of tasks and there are very standardized scores. And if you earn a certain score, it may be indicative or suggestive that you might have dementia or a certain level of dementia. So maybe you're you're mildly impaired or you're moderately impaired or you're more severely impaired. So that's pretty standard. My family's had an experience with dementia. And my, mm-hmm. when going through this with my mom, mm-hmm. she was quite combative. We were, at the, mm-hmm. we were at the stage where she really shouldn't be driving. Now, she was, she was a retired nurse. Right. She's one of the Super most- Super independent, ro- tough as nails. Ex-Army nurse. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, real, real tough. Right. Literally still, has her, still had her boots up until right. the day she died. Right. Uh, but getting her in mm-hmm. was right. brutal. Brutal. And it wasn't until there was an unfortunate incident where that's what usually what happens. She was sunsetting, meaning it was right. middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get a call from the independent care manager mm-hmm. saying your mom is walking down Route Nine in Brookline, mm-hmm. going to the doctor's office at one thirty in the morning. Right. Would you like to talk to her? Because fortunately, this mm-hmm. night person followed her out, mm-hmm. and my mom was quite upset um, that. They had called me and, Mom, what's up? Well, mm-hmm. I have a, an appointment with a doctor at 1.30. Mom, it's at night. No, no, well, it's 1.30. 1.30 is 1.30. He said, 1.30, I'll be there at 1.30. Right. And she's banging on that door right. at 1.30 <laughs> in the morning. And right. the uh, security guard comes mm-hmm. out and is looking at her like she's crazy. No, it's just dementia. Mm-hmm. Meantime, they call the uh, the fire department and the police and right. all that. And when the, when the EMT went to take her cane, he ended up getting whacked by it. <laughs> So she was then duct taped to the gurney oh, no. and That's taken. Unfortunate. It, it was, but it was fortunate in that they took her for a three-day hold, mm-hmm. where she was diagnosed, right. and then from, from there we were able to take action as her family. Right. But right. prior to that, we had no legal authority to right. do anything Correct. other than watch what was yeah. soon to be a train wreck. Right. That's the situation I'm in now with my mother-in-law. So it's 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 tough. Yeah. And it's tough. you know, 
one of the challenges are finding resources and advice mm -hmm. to send you in the right direction. Right. And what do you do when your loved one's combative? Right. Because, you know, I'm looking at my mom and tough, tough gal, don't get me wrong, but this was a whole different person. How do you contend with that? Mm -hmm. I didn't know of any resources. My family members, right. this is the first time we've been confronted by mm -hmm. it. We didn't know that there were resources out there, right. which is in itself a big challenge. Right. So with that, finding the resources, how do people find your resources? Mm -hmm. the, the resources we offer here at Emerson College. So here at Emerson College, we have a center called the Robbins Speech, Language, and Harry Center, which is on Tremont Street. And it's a very vibrant clinic for individuals, children and adults, who have been diagnosed with some sort of communication or cognitive impairment. And I work solely with adults who have acquired neurogenic impairments, such as dementia. And we've had a couple of people, um, individuals, clients come in who had the primary progressive type of aphasia and were really struggling with communication. So how people found out about Robbins is on our website. They did a search, a Google search, and, and Robbins popped up. So we have provide services. It's often word of mouth. Sometimes our staff, our students, we have a lot of alumni across the country. Sometimes they refer to us and say, you know, hey, I have this person I'm working with or my family member's ill, would you be able to see them? Sometimes we get referrals from local physicians and we have local partnerships with other colleges and local hospitals and they sometimes refer people to us as well. But it's really challenging. It's really challenging to find appropriate resources because as you said, a lot of folks don't recognize that they need therapy or don't recognize that they might benefit from therapy. So it's really hard to convince people to do that sometimes. Now, the services you offer, are they covered under most people's health plans? How does that part work? Can you just say, hey, my mom needs help, bring her in? Or mm -hmm. I'm sure there's some sort of intake process involved. Could you explain the process involved? So we have clinic uh, administrative person who does the intake. She has a form and she's lovely and she would speak to anyone on the phone. And then there's a form you fill out and um, then you receive an evaluation. You come in, there's an interview, we conduct an evaluation and then we meet with, again, the client, the person who has the disorder and any caregivers and um, make recommendations for treatment and the frequency with which you'd like, we'd like you to come in. So maybe once or twice a week uh, for 60 minute sessions, I would say that's pretty standard. We also provide opportunity for education. So we really are a family centered program where if you come to the Robin Center, we really work with you, the client, but also you, the caregiver. And we really try to provide resources and really the therapies about everyone in the room, everyone that's affected, everyone is affected by dementia. It really impacts the entire family. And so our services would be there to provide that kind of support and education for the entire family. Now, is this like a teaching hospital environment? I, I know we have undergraduate and graduate programs mm -hmm. that study this. Who are the people that deliver the therapies and What's the role of students in terms of the Robin Center? Great question. So first, I didn't answer your insurance question. So we do not turn anyone away if they're not able to pay. There is a private fee, a nominal fee of about $30 per session, uh, which I think comparatively to some other community clinics is a pretty reasonable price. But if you, you are unable to pay and we will never turn you away, we see everyone who requests service and you can apply for a scholarship and we will cover that. 
In terms of the therapy, uh, again, I'm a speech-language pathologist, and one of my roles in the clinic is as a clinical instructor. So I oversee our graduate students who actually conduct the therapy. So our students in the graduate program are studying to become speech-language pathologists, and they have an opportunity to practice and to learn how to provide therapy services and how to conduct assessments and whatnot. But they're always supervised by a licensed and certified speech-language pathologist. That person's always in the room to ensure that it's quality therapy and that the students are doing the right thing for each individual that comes in. Could you explain the whole graduation requirements in terms of the degree you graduate with and then how does it work with licensing? It's a two-year graduate program, and all of the students in the program participate in, obviously, academic coursework, but they also have a clinical component, and we have to meet uh, what we call ASHA standards, which is the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. They're our governing body, and there are certain requirements that all of the students have to meet in order to be eligible for certification to become a speech-language pathologist. So they have to be in a variety of settings, work with individuals across a variety of ages, with a variety of disorders. They provide service both on our Robin Center, but also in the community. And that's part, actually partly my role on campus is to find placements for these students to do their clinicals and to gain real world experience. They're in schools, they might go to a hospital, they might be in a skilled nursing facility, they might be in private practice or early intervention centers. And then they meet the requirements for graduation and they graduate and then they have to do nine months of a clinical fellowship period. And then if they successfully pass that, so now they have their master's, and then they pass this nine-month period of real work experience. They're getting paid. It's a salary. It's a real job. Um, They get their C's, uh, which means they are certified um, speech-language pathologists. Depending on the state you're in, there are different and individualized state licensure requirements that are separate from certification. And each student has to find out his or her own requirements for each state that they might live in. So Massachusetts is pretty parallel to what it is for ASHA, but there are other states that have extra requirements, and the student has to meet those. Bring this back to dimension. When you look at the therapies that are deployed to patients, are these standard therapies that go across all speech disorders? Is this just specifically for dementia, or could this apply to some other challenge that a younger person might have? Yes, that's a great question. There's one specific type of therapy that we often use in dementia that can also be used often in individuals who have sustained a traumatic brain injury, and that's called space retrieval therapy. And that's a well-evidence-based practice sort of program that's in the literature where you are teaching someone how to, again, use compensatory strategies to help them remember information. So just like the example I brought up earlier, um, instead of having the person try to remember the date and get super frustrated that they can't remember that it's November 4th or whatever the date is, um, you teach them to refer to a calendar um, as as a means of sort of remembering. So you do it on this time sampling. So you would say, okay, George, what's today's date? Look at the calendar and tell me the date. And he looks at the calendar and he tells you the date. And then you literally wait 20 seconds. And you say, okay, George, what's today's date? And you don't really care if they remember the date. What you want them to remember is that they should look at the calendar. And you can use that for a variety of tasks. 
again, um, a loved one that I know personally is struggling with this. She um, had gone to the doctor and as part of the testing I mentioned earlier, the doctor asked her what the date was and she started looking around the doctor's office for the calendar. She couldn't tell her what the date was, but she knew enough that to look for the calendar. And then the doctor asked her, you know, what time is it? And again, she looked around for the clock and couldn't find the clock. So she wasn't able to tell her what the time was. But she knew enough about the strategy to try to employ that strategy. So that's what you're teaching is, is again, the circumventing to try to um, teach them things like that. Same thing with medications, really important to do space retrieval as a way to help someone recall when they're supposed to take their medications um, at different times of the day. So that's one that's very well versed and researched in the literature. With our remaining time, could you give the audience three takeaways? Sure. The first takeaway is don't give up. I think it's really important to not provide some sort of support for the patient who's now been diagnosed with dementia. They need a lot of support. Don't give up on them. We know that this is a deteriorating process, but we want to provide them the opportunity to stay as functional and as engaged in life as possible. Um, we know that there, unfortunately, things are going to change and they won't be able to maybe attend parties or remember their grandchildren or whatnot. But you wanna to try to maintain those, those life interactions as long as possible. So I think that's an important takeaway. I think the second thing is, is, to, is for, especially for caregivers, to seek out support. Don't try to do this yourself. Don't feel like no one else is going through this because there are a lot of people going through this. Um, dementia, the incidence of dementia is growing rapidly as the baby boomers age. Uh, many more people will be diagnosed with dementia just as a function of getting older and just based on the sheer numbers. Um, you are not alone. And so I think it's really important for caregivers to reach out to other individuals um, and seek support. I think the third takeaway is thinking about safety, at least for me personally, again, speaking about my loved one, trying to keep her home as long as possible in a familiar setting with loved ones around her. Again, at some point, I know she will probably have to go to some sort of assisted living or a memory care unit. But I think trying to keep her at peace, as home as long as possible, as long as it's safe and things can be put in place, that is very valuable for me as a caregiver and I'm trying to honor her request to stay home as long as possible and I think that that is a way to honor her and our love for her is to try to do that. But when and if it becomes unsafe and or too, too challenging because at some point it may, um, then I think the more respectful thing would be to put her, to help her go to a place where their supports are there and someone can provide that kind of care and service for her um, through, the, through the rest of her life. Laura Glufflin Tham has more than 20 years of clinical experience working with adults who have cognitive communicative disorders. An experienced clinical supervisor and teacher, she works at Emerson College's Robin Speech Language and Hearing Center. There, she supervises graduate students as they conduct evaluations and therapy with adult clients who present with various neurogenic communication disorders. I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. We had studio help from associate producers, Sam DeCoste and Lucas Poiser. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.